Oh, Canada, a vast idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the Great White North, full of mystery, crime, the paranormal, and dark history. Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel with the Ottawa game covering more international cases. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Listen to the 48 Hours Podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. space. Yes, welcome. Hello, I am Tim, here tonight with Lance. Lance, que pasa? Que pasa, yeah. I love, I love that intro. That, that gets me fired up every single time. The music, I, I love thinking about the Dean case and just taking a step back from all the all the craziness of these current cases. And and as as the late, great Huey Lewis said, going back in time. <laughs> it's a lot of fun to dive into this case. The music kind of brings you back already. Um, and Ed Hoopman's voice is lovely as well. So, uh, yeah, tonight we have episode three of the Dean murder case our coverage of that uh, william k dean from the small town of jaffrey new hampshire was murdered in august of 1918 and this is the third episode in this series if you haven't heard the first two yet i do recommend you check those out but tonight we are going to introduce you to the dean murder research group this audio is from when we filmed with the Dean Murder Research Group up in Jaffer, New Hampshire in April of 2017. The Dean Murder Research Group is a group of gentlemen who reside in Jaffrey or in the surrounding towns, uh, Keene, Peterborough, Dublin, um, and they have gotten together, uh, which we talk to them. We, we have these interviews with them, and we, we ask them how they got involved with the Dean Murder and what and that's essentially what brought them together and they all have their different reasons and it's very really fascinating um especially uh Rob Stevenson who organizes the Dean Murder Research Group you'd think that the organizer would be the most passionate and and opinionated about the case but when we spoke to him and you'll hear this he's he really has no interest in finding out any solution i think he realizes the, the type of uh the type of rabbit hole that that you can get caught up in and and he says, I, I have other interests, and we'll hear this later on, but he does a really, really excellent job. I think that's important because um, 
to not be so personally connected to it so that he can scan and and upload the thousands and thousands of pages of FBI documents. He can organize the meetings. He can, uh, you know, maybe bring some coffee um, and uh, to the meetings but and, and get lunch and everything. But uh, very, very interesting and, and diverse group of people. They, they, the age group goes from 30 years old to, uh, I mean, at least the – 90. So our first clip tonight we have is just introducing a few of these members, five of these members. One of them you've heard before, Ryan, and then we're going to be back to explain what the next clips are. Ryan, I believe, is one of the, unless I'm completely wrong, one of the youngest people in the Dean Murder Research Group. Uh, And over the course of his research, he's amassed a a ridiculous amount of information and he's got a he's got a, a a filing cabinet in his brain that he can just pull from very interesting person and he is the first person that we interviewed when we went up there in april um and just asked some pretty direct questions my name is ryan malahi why do you look into the case Actually, uh, I'm a researcher and I was at the Keene Library doing unrelated research on the history of movie theaters and I was in the vertical file and I came across a file that said Dean Murder. And so being a CSI you know, junkie and mystery, I delved into that file and it had some basic clippings on the Dean Murder and Mr. Dean and it just really uh, titillated me and so I went home and started doing uh, some web research and I saw that there was a murder group that was forming to do research and being a local researcher I was fascinated and I you know came down and met with the group and got involved. What is your name? Greg Burke. And why do you look into this case? Well about 10 years ago I was on vacation up here sitting in a B&B right here in Jaffrey and at breakfast I ran into a fellow who had returned to Jaffrey for his 50th high school reunion and he was talking about this case and I got interested and so I found um, the uh, grand jury proceedings that uh, Mark Smollett put together and um, really was fascinated by the whole question came up. I met Mark Smollett back then she had given a presentation over in Peterborough one time and uh, over the course of, since then, it's probably 10 years, I've been working, trying to decipher some sense out of all the data. I've been looking at the records from FBI, um, been down to the National Archives, gotten a lot of additional records, like from the Army, and have done a lot of uh, reading and investigation about uh, aspects of the case that are not necessarily included in the records here involving the German connection, looking at the history of the German espionage and sabotage in the United States, both before World War I, our entry into World War I, and uh, during the war, which is quite fascinating. It was quite active and extensive. And I'm trying to uh, bring the connections into Jaffrey uh, via an external review of what was going on in the German espionage space to try to develop this theory that uh, the murder was related, in fact, to Mr. Dean finding out about the signaling. 
I'm Mark Bean. I got interested in the case because I grew up in Jaffrey. My family is from Jaffrey. My grandfather, um, Delcy uh, David Bean Sr., who was the uh, founder of um, Didi Bean and Sons Company, my family's business, was involved in the case at the time. He was a young businessman, uh, Bean and Simons was the name of his business at the time, and he was um, very much involved, knew the characters, knew Rich and uh, Dean also. And um, then years later, my mother was the one that transcribed the grand jury inquest, um, the notes that were discovered at the Keene Courthouse, and she had been trained in Pittman shorthand, and so she volunteered to do that. And so I've always had a connection to and an interest in the case. I'm Richard Boutwell. I am a native of Jaffrey. Well, I initially got involved because I volunteer with the, the archives of the Jaffrey Historical Society. And when the group first formed, they wanted to know what we had in the archives. So I was the one involved with getting everything together. And of course, I had, uh, having grown up town, in town, became curious because all the years I'd lived here, I'd never heard of the case. And so I began becoming quite curious. So I began reading as much of the materials as I could find and sort of was captured by it and captivated by it and wanted to know more. And after the group really got going, much more came forward. So I've just been sort of following along. It's uh, Rob Stevenson. And why do you look into this case? Well, I, I'm no longer, but I was president of the Historical Society when we received a grant, actually two grants, to do something to acknowledge or bring attention to the 100th anniversary of the Dean murder. So, as I was president at that time, I figured I have to do something. So I am not indeed, in fact, I've tried very hard not to become too engrossed in the whole story because I've got other things I'm engrossed in. And uh, so I leave that to others, but I've been doing a lot of the organizing and developing a website and scanning documents and so forth. But uh, my knowledge of the whole thing is, is not as deep as um, that of several other people involved in this. I've scanned all these documents and I've never read, read the results, um, which is fine with me. Which is fine with Rob Stevenson. I love it. Uh, Rob doesn't want to know. Um, I, I think it's it's different. It's unique. It's it's special to uh, to groups like this. To and and I think it's important. Like you were saying, it's you need someone like this who will keep their emotion out of it and will do the work that is required to get the information out there. And then you know let let other people kind of uh, play with that information and get emotional with it. Right, right, exactly. Isn't it super interesting that um, it takes 100 years for something that absolutely polarized a town, absolutely divided a town, uh, to to create this sort of – I mean, during their, their discussions, they – you know, there were a couple of small – heated moments. But um, when I say heated, it's only heated in comparison to the really casual conversation that they were having before. Uh, and there were just sort of disagreements with details. But all of them have very simple reasons for being involved. 
And and Rob's reason is that he was president of the Historical Society, and this the uh, the 100-year anniversary is coming up. It was a very significant time in the town's history, and that's coming up, and, and they're hopefully going to be opening up a new theater. They're hopefully going to have a play that is commemorating the 100-year anniversary based on the Dean murder. And the spectrum is so huge for everybody's reasons, but the reasons themselves are super simple. Um, and And... It it's a really it's a really cool group of people that we just heard from. We heard from Greg Burke, who was someone who vacationed in that in the Jaffrey area and didn't have a direct connection, but he started looking into it. He said it immediately struck him. And I don't think what immediately struck him was what turned out to be his reasons for becoming fascinated with it. Because what immediately strikes you is is how I guess, gruesome the murder itself is, and it's unsolved, and wow, it's unsolved to this day. And then once you start looking into it, and he says this too, he, you know, he basically starts dissecting, like, society in small-town America during the first Great War. And Jaffrey was certainly a small town, and the first Great War affected every town in America. And look at how it affected this town. And I think he got really caught up in that. And and looking at how the, the the impact, even on the small town in the middle of, you know, middle of New England gets caught up in something like that. I also think for Greg, it kind of sounded like almost the, like the beginning of a horror movie or, or something like that, where he's on he's on vacation at a bed and breakfast and he's reading the morning paper, having coffee at the at this bed and breakfast. Then he hears someone come in and starts talking about the murder and then he overhears it and then he gets really curious about it and then starts looking into it i mean it's a great setup oh yeah political thriller horror yeah (laughs) Yeah. totally like dan brown wrote it (laughs) but he um i i think uh his his angle is interesting because he is still digging for a connection uh that proves that the feds were up there investigating these specific lights and and at, at that specific time so I think that's pretty interesting. He's he's kind of taking a different angle and looking to sort of a roundabout way of proving that Mr. Dean was killed because of these lights. Exactly. And what we do know is that the federal agents were there in the months and weeks before the murder, including the day of, and they were looking into claims of lights on Mount Monadnock and the surrounding mountains. And what you're saying and what's very cool is that Greg's angle is that he he's he 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 wants to make the connection that those lights and the reasons that the federal agents were there was because of espionage whether it's german espionage or some other espionage related to the war there was some sort of unpatriotic espionage which is probably redundant right yeah i think i think you're right though if if it can be proven that these federal agents were in Jaffrey investigating these lights and Mr. Dean um, gets killed that night, you know, and, and obviously everything he was talking about leading up to his murder was these lights. Yeah. I mean, it's too coincidental not to be part of the reason why he was killed. Exactly. And then you fit the pieces together with Charles Rich and the black eye and you include Ryan's Ryan's theories and there's there's a lot of 
there's a lot of moving parts to this, a lot of elements, a lot of characters that we haven't even gotten into that can contribute to this. Yeah, I can't wait. Now, Richard Boutwell, who I believe is the oldest of the of the group, he told us some stories that are sort of off the record with the last time we were up there in December about um, some students of his and uh, got really animated when he was telling these stories. So as simple as his reason is for becoming involved with the Dean murder, he's almost the most appropriate person to to discuss it just based on how where he was at when when he was when he was super young and this was this this is he was feeling the residual effects of the town the the aftermath of it he can speak to how people uh reacted to it how his family reacted to it and you know he he was in charge of the archives at the historical society he was able i mean i'm sure the things that he looked at and touched were things that he had looked at and touched when he was a kid and newspaper articles or just artifacts i mean he's he's the closest you can get to a direct doorway to that time which is awesome um mark bean also is a pretty uh direct doorway to that time with his mother transcribing the Pittman shorthand for the the grand jury hearing which if you don't know look up Pittman shorthand it's basically lines and kind of chicken scratch yeah we posted a picture a while ago on our Instagram and uh, Facebook page of it and yeah it just looks like almost like a doctor's handwriting <laughs> um, yeah but, exactly. but but there's no letters it's just scribbles uh, so it's pretty amazing that that she was trained in in transcribing Pittman shorthand for an unreal related reason uh many years before and it came in handy in this way uh which was pretty cool right and mark is now the uh torchbearer whether he likes it or not it it was his mother it was his mother and it was it was her work and um he doesn't seem like he is is shying away from it at all no but i mean the he does run a company and he he does have other involvements and uh, and responsibilities but he's you know he He's a cool dude. Like he has talked to us a lot, and he's uh, very, very specific about about where he stands with this. And yeah, he is he is sort of the torchbearer for this. Okay, and the next clip is these fellows talking about what the strangest thing about this case is. I think the strangest thing about the mystery is that um, the town was very. Div- oh, it's tough to say. Yeah, give me a sec here. I'm sure. that one. I guess the strangest thing about it is is just having grown up in Northern Mass near Jaffrey and you know be, knowing about Jaffrey and Monadnock, um My whole life, I never would have dreamed that there was German spy activity and you know all of the things that I've learned that were going on at the time in Jaffrey. Um, you know, I never would have thought in a million years that sort of thing was happening right in my backyard. Uh, you know, about a hundred years ago. So that to me was probably the most strange and fascinating thing. Finding out that this this story that you know is is like a combination of Twin Peaks, The X Files, and uh, Indiana Jones is you know going on right in your back your backyard. The strangest thing I find about the mystery is the uh, incompetent initial investigation. It was uh, done so poorly that it's really hard to believe that uh, even 100 years ago that the standards for investigatory and uh, forensics were so bad. I guess it's the way that it, it divided the town so much that it became such an issue between the different classes, the Catholics and the Protestants, and the, uh, the mill owners, the, the industrialists in town versus the, the working families. 
and that uh, you know a, a murder like this was so unusual to happen in Jaffrey, and the effects that it had on the town were so significant and lasted for so long. Um, that's always been an amazing thing to me. I think just all the elements that are there. I mean, there's the rich versus poor, Protestant versus Catholic, German lights on the mountain, uh, mysterious characters. Um, um, you know, it just seems like it has all the elements for a, a real mystery, which it is. Okay, so another pretty good clip here. My first takeaway is the social elements, how they kept coming up. I mean, I think that's interesting. More than one person mentioned it. Uh, Rich versus poor. uh, Protestant versus Catholic. And that was the first time that I had heard rich versus poor. So what do you make of that? that, Does that mean that the dean dean and his wife weren't uh, as wealthy as Charles Rich? No, because I think at least uh, Mrs. Dean... Um, had a, a background that afforded them the lifestyle for uh, Mr. Dean to be a gentleman farmer, which is a farmer just by choice. Uh, he did it for pleasure. Uh, they didn't have to go out and get get work. Um, but I think the rich versus poor is the fact that, ironically, Charles Rich's position was the uh, the president of of the bank in town and. All of the, I think it's more about the aftermath. So it's all of the elements that came in, and all of the, all of the factors that 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 came up after the murder. You have the murder of somebody who is, for lack of a better term, living off of his wife's wealth, and he can afford the lifestyle of being a gentleman farmer. You have one of the main suspects being the president of the bank at the time you have the people who lived on dean's farm very wealthy uh lawrence kofelt who didn't even need to get a job but he went to go get a job at the portsmouth uh, docks just to show that he just to basically avoid going to fight the war it was either work or fight and then you had this whole element so it also goes into catholic and protestant you have a real blue collar working element watching the white-collar element sort of ripping their town apart by doing this, by committing this act, and they, they, have, to, they have to now deal with the repercussions. So maybe, maybe that's where the rich versus the poor comes into play. I also think it was interesting that Greg mentioned that the investigation was flawed from the very beginning. And uh, as we kind of know from hearing more about this case, it it surely was. Um, And I think some of the reasons why become a little bit more prevalent in the next clips. But uh, before we throw it to that, Lance, do you have anything else about this last clip? Everybody we spoke to had a reason. Ryan's reason seemed to be a, a personal fulfillment for a mystery. He even brought up the X-Files in Twin Peaks. He likes that idea of solving a mystery. Greg's reason, which I think we are not surprised at just hearing the first few words that he says, is that it's a botched case. He says they, 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 did, a, they did a terrible job from the beginning, so that's relatable. You know, we, we can understand that whole concept of 
people looking into a mystery and then because it's unsolved, does that just mean that the police botched it because it's unsolved or did they do a good job and, and it was unsolved? And then Mark, whose whole family is embedded in that town, his first thing was that it divided the town. And you can get why he would say that. His, his, his family brought the town to what it, what it is. You know, it helped the town grow. Uh, and then Rob, with his, again, not surprisingly, with his nonchalant attitude of, you know, I don't really, if it's solved, it's solved. If not, it's not. I'm more of the, I'm more of the bookkeeper. He says all elements, all elements to the case are, are, are so he's very general in it. So you've got the one encompassing general guy, and then you have the, the um, conspirator, and then you have the personal you know fulfillment guy and then you have the you know steeped in family history guy which i i think makes for just an amazing story okay here's the next clip where these gentlemen describe what they believe happened to mr dean that night uh it's tough you know where i'm still in the process of researching it you know you can go one day you think one thing one day next um you know, my core theory at the moment is is that uh, Mr. Dean was murdered um, to keep be kept quiet by Pete Lawrence Kofelt, his possibly his henchman Frank Romano, and Mr. Rich was also somehow involved in that. With just the motives and the circumstances, um, the people that had uh, a motive to kill Mr. Dean would have been Kofelt who Mr. Dean threw out of the house from renting his house because he suspected he was a spy. Um, his handyman, Frank Romano, had had run-ins with Mr. Dean and had made co- threatening comments about him um, in front of other people. And um, with Mr. Rich turning up with the black eye and giving different stories as to how he got it and immediately trying to sell the suicide or Mrs. Dean committing the murder, um, you know, all of those things lead me to believe that Mr. Rich was somehow involved. He may not have committed the murder, um, but he was somehow involved in that Frank Romano and Lawrence Kohfeldt, um wanted Mr. Dean dead to keep him quiet. The group has got several different theories, and the one that I'm working on now is to try to look at uh, additional information that we may get from this particular series in terms of adding new information. When one looks at the documentation that we have now, one finds it's full of inconsistencies, contradictions by different witnesses, and it's virtually impossible to really be certain of what's going on. You can develop a lot of theories about what's happened, but there's no smoking gun, as it were, and no definitive evidence with regard to what happened. I have some uh, very strong suspicions about who was involved, but I, I can't prove it at this point in time. What I'm working on mostly right now is the... Uh, trying to determine uh, objective evidence of the connection between the German espionage network in the United States and Jeffrey at the time. Well, <laughs> well, he certainly was murdered. There's no question about that. And the idea that, as I, I originally, I had grown up thinking that, as I mentioned earlier, that the German spy thing seemed like it was more a product of war hysteria and lights from Monadnock, you know, signals to Boston always seemed kind of ridiculous um, to me and unlikely. Um, but the, the more research that has been done and there's been more connections to 
uh, potential of German spy activity in the area, and the fact the way Dean was murdered, this wasn't something that was just, uh, it was a very professional kind of a murder, certainly a very brutal one, and the idea that uh, there had to be something bigger going on seems more and more likely, um, the more I've gotten into it. But I don't, I don't have a, a, a claim to know what the answer is by any stretch. <laughs> Easy question. Well, <clears throat> I have to believe some of the things that I've heard, the, the fact that Dr. Dean was in, in town that night, people saw him and recognized that, uh, him because he was a, a, a good citizen of the town, and that he did uh, visit some people and went home, carried out his usual chores, and, and met his death there. But the circumstances are very curious how, how that could happen. Um, with, of course, the town was much quieter than 100 years ago. But it was just, very, it's just, just a curious thing to know that why a man who seemed to be as peaceful as he was would be murdered in the brutal way that he was. It's something I haven't given much thought to, really. I mean, somebody's found all tied up and dead in a, in a well, so he ended up there. And so I would say it, it's somebody that is no somebody that has already been um, investigated or known about, you know, be it rich or or this um, or uh, uh, Romano or any number of people that. Um, one of them is the person who did it, and I—I I mean, I have the feeling it's one person, um, not two or more, and that it's somebody that we know—we know the name of already, not somebody who, some mystery person that happened to be in the neighborhood and then disappeared. Okay, some interesting clips there. First thing that comes to mind is Frank Romano. Uh, from Ryan and also mentioned again by Rob um, I think that's interesting he's a person we have not heard from or heard about yet in this series and he's described as Kofeld's handyman or henchman so that that's pretty interesting and we we are going to play a clip from the meeting in just a little bit that dives a little deeper into this guy Romano it depends on who you talk to. Actually, I think Ryan go, makes it a point to say uh, when he when he speaks of Frank Romano, he says Kohlfeldt's handyman, his henchman. He always makes sure there's a very clear distinction between being a handyman and a henchman, right? The handyman is a guy who hangs around and fixes things around the property, and a henchman is somebody who does your bidding. Um, so it could be that without directly saying – that Frank Romano's, you know, quote unquote, job was to be a handyman, but he was actually the henchman. And the more we hear about Frank Romano, he becomes one of the top maybe three or four characters in this case of the most interesting uh, that we can look at. But I, I also love how these characters are becoming their own characters they without realizing it. And I love the way Mark said it. he certainly was murdered. <laughs> yeah, Mark's comments interested me greatly because 
He said that he always thought that the signal lights from Mount Monatnock seemed unlikely until he dug very, very deep into this and kind of joined the murder research group and kind of came around to it. Um, but but that's kind of similar to my feelings on this. And, and Lance, you and I have talked about this, and I've texted you just randomly out of the blue um, before just saying there's no way <laughs> there were spy signals going from Mount Monadnock, and you've kind of talked me down off that ledge uh, a little bit. And so I, I can kind of see that. I, I don't know that I'm to where Mark is right now, but I'm uh, I'm somewhere in that process, I think. Yeah, because I love the way Mark said that uh... – he he started off with that mindset. Um, Mark Bean has every right or every reason to stick to uh, a very simple murder, something that's not going to disrupt this town for many reasons. He has businesses in this town. He has he has family roots in this town. But for him to say, as he looked at it and it became more apparent, the key words that he used is something bigger was happening. And you can't say just based on how Dr. Dean was found and the federal agents being involved during World War One, before the murder, the day of the murder and after the murder, and many people saying that they saw these weird lights coming off of the mountain and the mountains in that area. You, you have to say that at least something bigger was going on. Not saying German spies, not saying anything specific, but the murder, the lights the federal agents there is a bigger thing there they're not all they're not all separate hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, and now for this clip, we have Ryan and Mark talking about if they think that this case will ever be solved. You know, I think at this point, I think the only way that it will be solved is if Someone comes forward with a diary, a letter, a piece of information, or 
comes forward with a personal account from a relative um, confessing, you know, uh, I think that's really the only thing at this point that can crack it open or some document that wasn't released prior being declassified that can be obtained through an FOIA uh, as far as the military documents that touch on the Dean murder. I think that's really the only way that we'll, we'll get an answer on this. I don't think that we're ever going to find the, the smoking gun, the proverbial smoking gun to say this is exactly what happened, but I think it's likely at this point that we will have a theory of what was, you know, of, of the things that didn't happen, we can eliminate and um, end up with a theory of what was pretty likely to have happened, even though we may not have, like I said, hard evidence that would point to an individual. I think we could um, likely have a theory that makes sense. I'd love to think that we might, but I don't know that that would be possible. If it never gets any more resolved than it is right now, all of this information about what was going on in Jaffrey, looking at it from the perspective of the different religions, the socioeconomic issues, the idea of um, not only the local town, but the region and even the, the country during wartime, all of these things are fascinating historical uh, pieces of information that create uh, an extremely interesting story. Okay, so what do you make of that clip, Lance? I love the two almost polar opposite. Uh, you have Ryan, who's like very optimistic. You can hear it in his voice. It, it is, and I don't blame him. It is cool. I know that he wants to find that letter or that document or that thing that he can get from the uh, Freedom of Information Act. Uh, that's going to be the that's going to be the smoking gun, which is the direct link to Mark saying, "I don't believe there's going to be a smoking gun, but I think there's going to be a time when we kind of know without really knowing or saying what happened, just based on the things that we know didn't happen." that that whole you know strip away everything that 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 you can and what you're left with is going to be the truth but um he has a very realistic view about it and um the realistic view is probably the case you, you know i don't think we're ever going to know uh unless you get ryan's uh unless what ryan has his optimism his his idealistic view of the whole thing actually comes to fruition if if there is something that can be pulled out of this safe in a lockbox and it says i killed dr dean you know with a signature and, and fingerprints on it um and i don't blame him but i love the fact that that uh that yin and yang are working together Okay, cool. And now we get into the group discussion. And the first clip we play here is some conjecture about did Mr. Dean stop by Mr. Rich's place that fateful night before he was murdered? And who's there to say that he did anyway? And should they be trusted? The night that Dean was murdered, um, he's... He, allegedly stopped at the Rich House and he was friends with them. He stopped there and then he traveled by himself back to his farm. And the Rich House is still, it's right out that window. What time did he stop at the Rich House? It would have been... Um, 9.30. What was that? 9.30? Yeah, somewhere in that. Now, according to, according to who did he stop at the Rich House? 
according to um, Mr. The, the, the Rich family, they, they, it was Mr. and Mrs. Rich, and it was their uh, Mrs. Rich's sister, Georgiana Hodgkins, who went on to write a book about the Dean murder that um, the Jaffrey Historical Society published um, not until like the 1990s sometime. But um, yeah, he was friends with, he was very close friends with the Rich family, with Mr. Rich, and um, had stopped by after doing some shopping in downtown that Tuesday evening and visited with them for a while. And then he went back to his house. And the key thing about that moment was is that Rich um, became a suspect primarily because he had a huge black eye, which he claimed um, his horse had kicked him, or had kicked and had knocked his pipe or something back into his face and given him this black eye. Um, the only witnesses to verify that would have been his wife and his sister-in-law, Georgiana Hodgkins, and Dr. Dean, had he survived. That the accident had actually happened prior to Dr. Dean turning up missing. So, <clears throat> There's some additional features with regard to the <clears throat> record. There are other folks that counter the theory that Dean went to Rich's house and that he may have gone straight home. That's and right. that, um, there are some other people who saw Rich uh, and did not see the black eye. Right. So there's conflicting evidence about yeah. what, where people were and when. Well, I thought according to Georgi Georgina? Georgiana. Georgiana. Um, I'm reading her book, that they came by in the afternoon. Or, so 9.30 seems really late. But no, it was in the evening. It was in the evening. She, she had just arrived in Jaffrey, yeah. and she went downtown and saw him downtown, <clears throat> and then he traveled back to there. In fact, I guess he gave her a ride he did. in his there carriage. Were two night opening, Saturday and Tuesday night, for the store stayed open until oh. 9 o'clock. Oh. Yeah. And uh, the thing is, though, that, you know, with Georgiana, Georgiana being the sister of Mr. Rich, um, you know, there's there's a little bit of bias there, oh, yeah, and, you know, and, and so, you know, it's, there, there was numerous witnesses that said Mr. Dean left downtown and went directly back to his house, and then there was other witnesses that said that he stopped at Mr. Rich, so it's, it's pretty divided. Okay, so a great clip here, Lance. Did... Mr. Dean go home first, or did he go to the Rich's place before he went home? And if he had stopped at the Rich's place first, he would have, by Charles Rich's own words, he would have seen Mr. Rich with the black eye from the horse already, meaning that it couldn't have happened during some altercation in which Mr. Dean ended up dead. So you can see why this is kind of confusing, and you can also see why these people have a reason to lie. Okay, yeah, so break that down into a couple of parts there. Please. If, if uh, we know by the grand jury accounts that Charles Rich, Georgiana Hodgkins, and Lana Rich, uh, Charles Rich's wife, they all have given sworn statements to the effect of Mr. Dean showed up right after Charles was kicked a glancing blow 
to his face. It hit his pipe, and that in turn hit his face. He got the black eye. Charles Rich has given testimony saying he was sort of – uh, putting a cold compress on that eye while, while Dr. Dean uh, had arrived. So Dr. Dean arrives. He was in the process of doing this cold uh, compress on his eye. And then Dean, according to Georgiana Hodgkins, Dean and Hodgkins had a private conversation, mostly and strangely enough about, um, about existence about she seemed like she she wanted to say that he he seemed a little bit uh detached um so according to the the rich clan that that meeting did happen dean was there um the accounts of him not having the black eye that's the other part to this so according to the to the uh testimonies 9:30 was roughly the time that he stopped by the house um you know people didn't have their cell phones and checking times uh and you know knowing what time they texted somebody so you can say 9:30 is probably 9:30 ish uh they have a conversation um and those accounts now we're into the second part of this those accounts of after 9:30 probably after 940 or 945 is when Dean, that's probably the earliest, right, that Dean would have left there. And then someone had seen Charles Rich after that period of time and said he did not have that black eye. Right. So that's pretty interesting, and that's where we're at now with the, with the murder research group, uh, their discussion. Um, what we do know is that Charles Rich had a black eye described as a beautiful black eye the next morning. And... Uh... One of the members actually in a clip, it must have been right beyond the clip that we pulled, but he said that this was a calm horse, otherwise known as a docile horse, one who never kicked, did not have a history of kicking or anything like that, especially kicking his owner. Um, This whole thing with this book, Prime Suspect, Prominent Citizen, this is the book by Georgiana Hodgkins, the sister-in-law of the prime suspect it almost feels like a tabloid to be honest and i don't mean to offend anybody and i know the jaffrey historical society published this book uh in the 90s i don't think they published it as this is a historical truth this is a historical fact this is um more of like uh an artifact from the history of this town i think is kind of how they published it Um, But you said just a minute ago, Lance, that Georgiana, the author of the book, had this conversation about life with Dr. Dean right before he died. And the only one who could back that up is Dr. Dean. And we get into it with with Ryan because Ryan was the first person to bring up to the Dean Murder Research Group that this book was basically fiction. And it is a bit tabloid in the way it reads – it's been extremely hard. I, we know that uh, Jack Cooey um, wrote Two-Legged Foxes, and my interactions with him while he was trying to get that published was that it was very tough to get that book published. Um, the only other book dedicated to the Dean murder is The Dean Murder Mystery by Burt Ford that was published in 1920. Um, and that was also sort of self-published. Uh, and it was almost done as a uh, Bert Ford was a war correspondent. And he was a journalist. So it was almost a collection of his uh, uh, findings. Um, so you have a book in 1920. You have a tabloidish type book in 1990-ish um, by Georgiana Hodgkins. And then you have Jack Cooey's book, Two-Legged Foxes, which is um, also 
has it's categorized as fiction because he's very specific in his theories with the Masonic Temple and the German spies and um and and who he thinks is responsible for it. You'd think that something that had this much gravity, especially right during the time when books were huge. It wasn't like someone was going to make a movie out of this. Like there, I would have felt that there should have been several books this, coming out. Of this. There's war drama. There's espionage. There's uh, there there's this, this murder that is you know he's thrown in a well and strangled and the president of the of the Mananoc Bank and it's crazy. It begs for a book. Yeah, and and she could have been paid to write this book by rich. You know if. It's a lie. Then all three of them were in on this. It was a secret that they, that they all knew that Charles Rich now had to bring these two, his his wife and his wife's sister, in on this murder plot that he apparently had no way to get out of if this is what happened because how could he just say, yeah, I did it in cold blood? You know, they, they, they probably would have... They wouldn't have written this book. You know, this book wouldn't have been written the way it likely was. Uh, maybe the wife would have divorced him. Who knows, you know, if, if he just admitted to a murder. But if he comes to them and says, well, look, I had no choice. This is what happened. This is the situation. These these Germans and blah, blah, blah. And then you get these people who conspire and write a whole fucking book about how he's innocent. And call the book Prime suspect prominent citizen right when i first saw that book years ago and i and i actually bought it at a small bookstore in peterborough new hampshire i thought that it was going to be about because the the title's even misleading it's called prime suspect prominent citizen you think that it's about this like the takedown of this guilty man who is a prominent citizen in the town he's a prime suspect prominent citizen used his power to 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 do this you know this deed um and then as you start to read it you you definitely realize that this is definitely a very sympathetic book towards charles rich and what you're talking about is that bigger picture that mark bean brought up in the in the in the uh in the earlier interview there um if Charles Rich had something to do with it and he got the black eye in the struggle during Dean's murder, then that means that you have Charles Rich, his wife, his sister-in-law. You have the the people that contributed to Dean's murder. So at the very least, it was Charles Rich and one more because Charles, Charles Rich is not driving the murder car, murdering somebody, coming back. Like... So you're talking at least four or five people that you're know, talking. Yeah, you're talking at least at least two people that murdered Dean and then at least three people who Charles Rich, if this is the case, told. And now it's this bigger picture that you just kind of can't ignore. And it really does fall. One part of it falls on the black eye. When did the black eye happen? Sure. Uh, it really, honestly, this is, I think this is all I need to know about Charles Rich. He showed up at the murder scene, and before he even saw the body, he said it was suicide. And then when they said, uh, no, actually, sorry, buddy, uh, we've seen the body. There's no fucking way, you know, Mr. Dean killed himself the way the body was found. Uh, and then he said, oh, well, Mrs. Dean did it. And meanwhile, Mrs. Dean is suffering uh, a deterioration of her mental capacities um, and physically unable to kill her husband and drag him the 100 feet necessary uphill to throw him in the rain cistern. So to me, that that tells me it's it's pretty it's pretty effing obvious 
that this guy had motive to lie. I'm pretty sure that is the words that was used when he showed up at uh, Dean's property, too. After he said that it was suicide, I'm pretty sure uh, Picard went up to him and was like, dude, there's no fucking way that it was suicide. <laughs> but you're right. Him him, him immediately attributing suicide to this. Him also showing up with uh, before – that's the other key to the whole Charles Rich thing is who made the phone call and when. Well, we do know who made the phone call to him. He shouldn't have known when he showed up in the first place that that Dean was dead. According according to all accounts, he showed up believing that Dean has was just missing at the time. Meanwhile, he showed up with the town um, undertaker. Yeah, yeah, the town undertaker, the coroner, because that's who you usually call up when you have a limited amount of people to call up. I could I'm just being sarcastic, but I could be totally wrong. Maybe that is something that you do, or something that you did back then. You know, your friend's missing. You just saw him the night before, and I guess maybe you do call up the coroner and say, hey, just in case we find the body, let's go up there. Right. Now, on the flip side of this, just to to be as objective as we can, right? So taking Georgiana Hodgkins' word for it and her and Dr. Dean, Mr. Dean, did have a conversation about life and how uh, right before he died, she tells Mr. Rich about that conversation. They hear there's an accident. Maybe she suspected he sounded suicidal or something like that. I mean, I know they're friends, and maybe if she had said that to to him, he would have went over there and checked um, logically, but maybe she didn't mention it until the next morning. Very, very reasonable, right? So they have this deep conversation, and next morning all she knows is that the phone call's been received and Dean's missing. And she might say, he sounded really he sounded really existential last night and might might you know it wouldn't surprise me if he would have done something he was depressed about Polly you know he was depressed about his wife it, he might have done something but again like to to show up and just immediately say well he's killed himself he's and also to circle back on the on the uh, undertaker it's mentioned in the grand jury testimony and it's very evident that there is a divide between Catholics and Protestants when Charles Rich is asked about the Undertaker, and there were there were two primary Undertakers in the town, uh, funeral homes Undertakers. It was Knoyer and Layton, and he showed up with Layton, and he mentions in the grand jury Knoyer is a Catholic and Layton is a comma is not. So there's it's you, you can if you read deep in between the lines there you can see where the there's there's already a, a wedge that's being placed whether it's intentional or not but again the key is what happened at the house what did he tell Georgi- Georgiana Hodgkins and when did that black eye happen and here is the last clip that we have here for this episode and we're talking about one of the new suspects Frank Romano. On the Kohlfeldt theory, there's you know another big theory which kind of doesn't get mentioned a lot, but was one that he was one of the main suspects at the time was Frank Romano, who was Kohlfeldt's assistant or all-around man, basically his handyman. And if you now you don't see a lot mentioned about him, there's a bit mentioned about him in the grand jury hearing. There's a statement that uh, Pickard read from him, but 
um, if you go through the FBI documents and the interviews and things of that nature, he was one of the main people suspected by people after Kohlfeldt because he was Kohlfeldt's kind of henchman or... Um, and he had made threatening statements allegedly about Mr. Dean and they had a whole problem because when Kofeld moved in, Mr. Dean didn't want him using his barn for his animals, but Kofeld kind of, kind of muscled his way into Mr. Dean's barn. Now Romano being his caretaker would be out there caring for Kofeld's things in Mr. Dean's barn. Now Mr. Dean didn't like that and this developed to be kind of a problem between Mr. Dean and Romano. So there are people that heard Romano say they would find Mr. Dean hanging, which is pretty incriminating. Um, also, um, he left the employ of Mr. Kofeld not long before the murder took place, and he wasn't able to account for where he was on during the three days where the murder took place, um, Romano. And almost everybody interviewed about him had a not a good notion about him that he was kind of a, a sketchy individual um so romano was somebody who is a very big suspect because he could not account for his whereabouts he was kofeld's kind of henchman or almost bodyguard type guy if you will um initially they ruled him out after their interviews but if you go back and really go through the the data now with fresh eyes there's a lot of reason to believe that he was involved with the murder. But Why, how was he ruled out? Um, he was, well... Well, he had an alibi. Well, but it was a sketchy really alibi. alibi. Yeah, I mean, okay. he didn't really have an alibi. I mean, he said that he was in Silver Lake, New York, with a woman who he didn't remember her name that he had met. And he, was, he also said he was sleeping out in the woods. So he was very vague about where he was at that time. And, and so... Like I said, he had made threats. There was the issue with Mr. Dean with the barn, which gave, and that was a conflict that was known to people that knew Mr. Dean. And so um, I think that they just interviewed him and they really, you know, they couldn't prove where he was or if he was at Mr. Dean. So they kind of, you know, they kind of had to leave it be. But there's a lot of things in the documents that kind of, contradict he he tried to come off as very nice and oh I would never do that and that he didn't know anything about Kohlfeldt's possible German activities but at the same time he admitted you know he told people they would rake the driveway every night in Temple so if someone showed up on a horse at night they could tell that people have been there so you know in the same token he's talking about doing things to keep track of people or coming to the property so there's a lot of mixed signals and the biggest damning thing for me was that they interviewed um, Romano's landlord back in New York after he'd gone back right after the murder and his landlord said that he hadn't been Romano hadn't been eating he was acting weird he wasn't sleeping and the the landlord of the rooming house was so suspicious that Romano was involved that he actually threw him out of the boarding house asked him to leave so you know, so I think Frank Romano, you know, he's almost a package deal almost with Kohlfeldt in a yeah. way that, you know, there, there's a gr good chance that he could have either done the murder for Kohlfeldt or been present. And he definitely had, um, you know, a motive because he didn't like Mr. Mm -hmm. Deans. Romano with the threatening comments, his landlord kicking him out, not having a good alibi. What does this 
All mean, Lance. Romano was described by Kofelt to be an all-around guy, somebody that he can't just pay someone, you know, a certain amount per per week to just do do what he needed uh, to be done. He, he, from all accounts, he enjoyed working with Romano, and Romano enjoyed working with him. Uh, he left his employee at the beginning of August during the year of the murder, um, and every time we talk about Romano, it always it always reminds me of the character from the Godfather. Was it Luca Luca Brazzi? He's a guy who will pledge his allegiance to you no matter what. And I think um, whether or not there was a murder that that had happened, I feel like Romano had always pledged his allegiance to Kofeld because Kofeld appreciated the fact that he could do anything that he asked him to do. The accounts of him not being able to eat or sleep. Uh, very interesting stuff, which we'll get into a little later on. But uh, yeah, Romano is, is one of those characters. Um, and it's definitely true that Dean and Romano had very conflicting views about what was to happen on the property and who had rights to do what. Okay, that's it for this episode of Crawl Space. Follow us on Twitter at CrawlspacePod. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll be back soon with more Dean murder. person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.